Hello, friends of Soul Kitchen. Thank you for listening to my podcast. My name is Jasper Mutsaerts. I'm an entrepreneur, adventurer, coach, and wisdom seeker. With Soul Kitchen, I interview people that inspire me. From TED speakers to social entrepreneurs, from activists to artists, from dreamers to seekers, from business people to spiritual teachers. With Soul Kitchen, I empower people to live their quest. And each episode contains a recipe for life. What is your quest? Welcome, friends, to a new episode of Soul Kitchen. I appreciate that you're listening to this exciting episode with Sasha Dimitrovic. She was born in Australia, spent some time in the United States, and she's currently in Portugal, where she's leading a retreat or co-living with Innate, where she is a community and operations leader. And she has also been and still is consulting for intentional communities around the world. And next to that, she has been a passionate visitor of Burning Man, aka Burner. So today I want to learn everything about Burning Man, intentional communities, and exploring unknown territories. And I met Sasha recently in Portugal, where we both attended a breathwork journey also of innate the company uh, that Sasha is working with and what I liked about this experiment is that we were part of the first group and uh, it had never been done before hello Sasha what's um, what's the life in you uh, at the moment Ooh, um, yeah, just really digging into innate and loving being in Southern Portugal. Uh, it's so beautiful down here. Um, yeah, doing a lot of nature time, walking around and yeah, just getting to know a new group of incredible people that have come together for this experience. So how did you, um, end up working for innate or with innate? Um, I actually uh, was connected to Harry because both of us were co-working at the same um, co-working space in Puerto Escondido in Mexico in uh, early this year. And we have a mutual friend there who actually was um, helping and kind of coaching me through exiting uh, the role I was doing previously uh, in California in, in the desert. And as I drove away in the taxi, it's funny because we spent so much time together. And as I drove away in the taxi, he called me immediately and was like, I can't believe I didn't think of this. You need to speak to Harry. He's doing something that's so similar to everything you've spoken to me about. And he's in the beginning stages. It sounds like, you know, you, you're, you're great at launching things. You should get on the phone. So Harry and I jumped on the phone. I remember actually that night was a, um, it was a nude festival on the beach in Zipolite, um, mm-hmm. where I was going, I didn't know it was a nude festival, but I was like, why are there so many naked people? Um, and I sat there watching the naked people reveling, um, and actually was on the phone to Harry for about four hours, just kind of nerding out on how much there was a need for this, um, being a digital nomad and seeing like both of us firsthand, the, the number of people that were just kind of a little bit lonely and lost and couldn't find connection. Um, and it's something that I'd thought about doing years ago in, in the States, in Brooklyn, and had done similar, smaller things, but honestly, very different in terms of, you know, innate having the inward practice. Um, so we, yeah, we just kind of immediately started bouncing ideas off each other and, uh, yeah, chatted every week or two from then on. And what's the philosophy of, uh, innate that attracts you? 
Um, I guess for me, I love the lightness and joy of it. Um, I think that a lot of the time, um, you know, co-working and co-living and things like that have a bit of a heaviness. Um, Harry is just such a being of light and joy and dancing. And he is just all about the dance of life. Um, he loves how he, he really wants to encourage um, coming together, celebrating life, um, getting your work done uh, at the same time and being around people who are also getting their work done. Um, we don't really select people that are just there for a holiday because um, that kind of changes the vibe. There's a lot of FOMO that happens then. Um, but yeah, just being able to kind of embrace that lightness and joy, but then also kind of um, explore an inward practice together and when there's a, a container that's created for a set period of time at the moment, they're one month experiences, but who knows what's going to happen in the future. Um, then people really feel that they are safe. They can get vulnerable. They can get deep. They can share with each other. And then, you know, there's, there's that saying, I think it's a uh, many ship, the uh, tide rises all ships or whatever. And people really kind of level up all as a group. Um, and so I love that experimentation part of it too. Just that like, we don't really know what's going to happen. We're going to chuck, you know, 20 to 30 people together in some beautiful place in nature. And we're all going to go deep on breathwork, meditation, yoga, whatever it is. And just like, we don't really know something's going to happen. And, and it does. <laughs> and uh, currently you're in Portugal with 20 or 30 people. And why do you feel they've decided to come to this uh, co-living? Um, I think honestly, actually, it's interesting. I did a questionnaire and I, we've got our kind of, um, uh, different values that we want to live by and the company lives by, um, you know, we've got curiosity, low ego presence, uh, honesty, um, oh goodness, I'm sure I'm forgetting one, but anyway, the one that came up first and most strongly was curiosity. Um, I think that generally the thing that ties everyone together is a curiosity for other people, but also for deepening uh, knowledge of themselves. So it's uh, curiosity and deepening the knowledge of themselves. And how have you deepened uh, your own knowledge of yourself in these first two co-livings of innate? Yeah, I mean, like really a lot, like more than I thought I was going to. Um, I was forced to process a lot in the breathwork co-live actually, um, but I haven't really touched for I don't know years or a decade a, a couple of pretty big um issues I suppose in in my life that I've just kind of hidden um so those came up and I do not think they're over but it's been an interesting practice just having them come to the surface and, and having to have a more mature approach to them as opposed to when I was younger at life and then I guess was in the habit of you know hiding that stuff or even for myself you know um and then for the meditation I just like honestly like just having to kind of be humble and realize that honestly I'm the least experienced meditator and <laughs> um be humble and kind of just go with that and dig in and try as hard as I can to 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 be on the same level and also be inspired by the other people and the other conversations and see honestly for me how oh wow like <laughs> these people are less reactionary they are more grounded like oh it seems like it works um so yeah there's, there's been quite a lot of little lessons through the practice so so with the breath work you said you had to process a few things and can you maybe give one example from your personal life or something that you had to process yeah i guess um we had a very big uh we had a very like loud session once um and uh actually during the example i had to leave the room I didn't even finish the breath. I didn't even start the breath work actually. Um, and what I realized was that trigger of like loud noises in small spaces had triggered something from my very early childhood, which 
Um, honestly, I had kind of almost thought I didn't have childhood trauma. Um, not that my life is perfect. And so then that kind of opened a door to, oh, that actually explains why I'm so sensitive to noises, even when they're not big and loud and dramatic, but like, even if it's just like someone like clashing around their knife and fork too loudly or something like that. And that sort of made me realize, oh, this is, this is the reason I'm not necessarily just agitated psycho. Um, maybe there's something under here that I might need to resolve or at least be aware of. Mm. So it, it brought you back to something that happened earlier in your in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, uh, I'm curious because now you're running a community, but you're also consulting intentional communities. Uh, what are kind of uh, best practices, in your opinion, to to lead and and and, and manage or facilitate communities? Um, I mean, I think it's different, honestly, for every community, because I think that it's generally a different intention um, and purpose with each community. Um, but I also think that's sort of the answer to the question is getting really clear on what is the purpose? What is the intention? Um, is it is everyone actually on board with that same purpose and intention? Because I feel like that's where the fractures happen when one person thinks, oh, we're, we're here and we're all about like, I don't know, healing. And then the other person's like, oh, no, we're here and we're all about uh, eating well, you know, and uh, the silly examples, but, but then, but under the guise of wellness, right. But like, I think to be able to get very specific and then everyone be really honest about why they're actually there and what their actual intentions are. Let, like, let their egos be known. Oh, I'm, I'm here. Cause I want to be the cool kid or whatever, you know? Um, and I think that once everyone knows what everyone else in the leadership kind of team, or at least the founding team is at least when everyone knows everyone's intentions, then you can make an uh, informed decision. Is this something I want to continue with? Do we want to continue down this path? Um, cause I think that eventually that all comes up anyway, but then it's, it, it comes at a point where people have invested so much and it can, it can go astray. Um, so yeah, basically I guess that comes down to honest and open communication. So, so one element is having a clear uh, purpose. Uh, the second one is honest and open communication. What are other best practices for communities? Um, I mean, I think honestly having guidelines and, and like operational processes and um, rules kind of in a sense written down and again, clear um, because these things come up, um, you know, conflicts come up, people have to be removed, people have to join, people have kids, people get married, people break up, you know, there's all these things that happen. People want a short-term renter that ends up staying for three months, you know, people want three dogs, like all these little things that when you're living together are quite important will come up. Um, we found that it's been really useful to have some frameworks in place first. Otherwise, um, everyone gets triggered by all the different things and, and it's just more conflict. Mm. Um, I, I guess what else? I feel like, yeah. I think flexibility too um, is a big one, but it also, again, that will depend on what type of community it is. But yeah. in saying there's rules and all these things, the counter of that is there's flexibility to change them. So it's purpose, it's communication, it's guidelines, it's flexibility. And then there's always a financial element everywhere, also in communities. Uh, so what are kind of your lessons learned around financial elements of running communities? Um, honestly, it's, it's a really tricky one because obviously the people that are putting in the most money think that they have the most power and the most votes. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, I've seen that combated really well with, um, kind of more flexible sociocracies and different governance systems, which allow voting and power to be distributed among the people in a, a really clear way. Um, so that sometimes the money 
is one element of how you might gain votes, but then you also might gain votes by working really hard um, and putting in your hours and your sweat equity. Um, so there's, and, and using DAOs for this too, which is a, a blockchain technology. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a way to kind of circumvent that. But I think also there has to be a bit of honesty around those things. Um, I mean, everyone's going to have to pay for the land eventually, right? Um, <laughs> so yes, it's yeah. always going to be tricky, I think. So, so you've been part of communities where there's a certain voting system and where you can collect, like get points for voting based on certain things? Um, I haven't been a very active community member in that, um, but one of the uh, recent contracts I did uh, for a big group in Bali, I actually told them, look, I need to look further into this. Can I have a couple of months to go and talk to intentional communities around the world and get their opinions on these different systems? Um, so I spent a lot of time with my team researching and getting on the phone with people all around the world and discussing this. So I haven't done that myself. Um, actually, that's not true. I think... Uh, but anyway, but I've seen I've seen it work pretty closely and spoken to the people involved. Um, and there's one online group actually. It's an online community cabin, but they're building cabins in real life in Austin, and they have a very good working system for this. Um, a lot of their stuff right now is an online based thing, and there's a lot of programmers involved. Um, and they'll get like they'll have tasks and guilds, and then each task they do in the guild, they'll accrue more voting power and points and and like tokens within it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's kind of fun and gamified too. I, I really like the idea of it. Um, I hasn't, to my knowledge, been any in operation that have been going for a super long period of time. So who knows if it's going to fail, but I think mm-hmm. that's one of the fun parts about all these communities is like, we kind of know the system's broken and instead of being like, oh, it's broken, let's run away and hide. It's like, oh, it's broken. Like, what if we tried to do this to solve it? Like, what if we use this system of, of deciding things or, or whatever? And, so I kind of have faith that this might be not just for intentional communities, but have broader reaching, you know, capacity. And can you give an example of uh, what people have been voting for or like what decision needed to be made? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, basically everything. Like, do we want to let in, you know, another 10 people? Do we want to build another five houses? Um, do we want to change the hours of school was one. Um, There was a permaculture group in Costa Rica I was talking to, and they have a lot of workshops um, only at a specific time of year. And then there was a big decision about whether to continue through and offer different workshops, but that would obviously mean more staff and more money and all that type of thing. So, so that was put into a vote. And I think they'd um, organizing according to, they waited, they're, they're less, structured i guess um but they'd waited for that decision the vote to be more for the people leading the workshops and you know the permaculture farmers who actually kind of wanted to have more quiet time in their home without a million people around um and i think they'd used a circling technique also for decision making and and going around and and i really kind of embodied what's coming up feeling open conversations um yeah there's there's a lot i think there's because what is a circling technique how does that work um this is basically where i mean you sit in a circle but it's it's a it's a conversation of what is alive in someone at that exact moment and absolute presence um you can you can do it focused on one person or one issue um but it's more speaking kind of not just in terms of a heady opinion on something but maybe in like how you're feeling in your body about it like what's a past experience to you that this reminds you of and how are you how did you deal with that maybe that triggered you in some way so it's a kind of broader approach to whatever the topic is um than than maybe a 
uh, yeah. cognitive. But it's an embodied version because you're sitting in a circle and people share honestly what's alive in them at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I see. And because um, you are the first intentional community consultant uh, that I've met, uh, mm-hmm. you, you are in that scene, so you probably know more people that do it, but you're the first that I've met. So how did you uh, enter that space? Um, honestly, through word of mouth, um, uh, just having a pretty big network actually through Burning Man. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of crossover there. Uh, and actually from my, my time in Bali, um, where I was in 2020 for a few months, um, there, yeah, there's a, there's a big group there actually. And they were my first, um, contract and I'm working with an old, uh, boss turned business partner from New York also on it. And we actually started a co-living space in Brooklyn together. Um, and so he and I met them back then. And then it's, we sort of watched how it evolved and he stayed in Bali and I went, came back to the States. Um, and then when, it, when they approached him and said, Hey, um, help us out with the community stuff, he was like, yo, Sasha, you have to get on this. So we're working together on that with, with one other also. Um, but essentially word of mouth. And since then, a lot of things have come up um, just through my network and conversations with people. Sometimes there are big things like, you know, writing an operational agreement. Sometimes it's a small thing like, hey, like how how would you think about structuring, um, you know, the financial agreement for a group of six people? For instance, I'm talking to a friend about now um, because I think Joe and I, my, my uh, business partner in New York, had a lot of different businesses with different kind of ownership structures so yeah it's just kind of evolving (laughs) kind of step by step you you have evolved this and um can you share in which communities you have lived in in which places i know i think brooklyn california berlin but can you give a bit of an overview so the listener understands your community experience yeah for sure um i guess I guess I kind of started my first one. I didn't, you know, it's funny, I didn't really like my first community. It was my live-in college at, at university and I immediately hated it and actually was like, community living is not for me. This is terrible. And then I actually bought a place and lived in that basically by myself and with a partner and was very happy with that. Um, but then I ended up in China for a little bit and I was staying in an artist colony on the outskirts of Beijing um, and that was really beautiful, really, really random and tough and it just... Beijing is crazy. Um, and it was a wild time to be there, but, but that I really saw just the creativity that was possible. And so that was pretty inspiring for me. Um, even just as a visitor for a few months at a time. Um, and then really, I guess the, the kind of major step from there was in Brooklyn. Um, I lived in intentional community. Uh, sorry, I guess I worked with and lived in community, intentional communities in Brooklyn for a while. And they kind of just kept me in the States. They took me under their wing and all the logistics of the visa and citizenship and all those things were worked out from within the community. So then I was kind of a walking example of community working and supporting each other. Um, As I mentioned, I was lucky enough to help build the first co-living space in Brooklyn with Joe and and one other, Tim. Um, It's still around. It's been around for about five years and it's a beautiful creative space. There's been so many iterations of it. Um, we've got two event spaces in there. We do workshops and stargazing and performances and summer rooftop parties. And um, there's the community that lives there of 17. But then there's also a much broader 
community kind of attached to it that will come in and out. Um, it's a bit loose, obviously, because they don't live there, but it's very, yeah, it's very diverse. There's all sorts of people there with all of their different intentions that come together. Um, and then I guess after that, I uh, left New York during the pandemic. And then I basically found myself at Cielos, which was a very interesting sort of uh, situation. It's two hours uh, out of LA in the high desert. And it's less of a structured intentional community. But of course, it was also a, a co-living communal space because we were living out there in trailers and tents building um, this retreat center event space in the middle of the desert. Um, it was absolutely beautiful place. And yeah, it was it was a great experience being on the founding team and working along a lot of the owners and actually a lot of what we were so busy building and getting people in there and starting to kind of host things that we skipped over a lot of what I do now, which is, and what I'm passionate about doing now more, which is um, setting things up before there's humans involved a little bit more. Um, I think that was a really big lesson there and, and kind of making sure we're all aligned. Um, and now I guess this sort of distributed community of innate um, that that's existing um, I visited a few other intentional communities around the place, but, um, but yeah, mostly. So, so you've had a wide range of, uh, of different community experiences. And, uh, at the end you mentioned the word distributed uh, community. W what does that mean? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's a real word or if I'm just using it. Um, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's how I think about innate. Um, you know, it's, it's a community while we're in it, right. The, you know, 20 or 30 people together, obviously that community. And then afterwards, everyone kind of goes off on their digital nomad ways. Um, and I think that, that it will become a distributor. I mean, it already is like, we're still chatting in our group chat a little bit, yeah. you know, you're right now coming from hanging out with other people from the Breathwork Collab, right? Yeah. That's um, no, that's been great to reconnect uh, in Morocco, and um, uh, yeah, it feels really nice to have some people that are in similar path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things I, I think I'm most excited about in building innate is at what point. Oh, I mean, it's already kind of happening without us doing too much, but at some point, it's going to be okay. Well, anyone that's been to innate will have some sort of platform. Not sure what yet, um, but you know, maybe it'll be a heat map of how many innators and they're in this place or that. And you won't have to have gone to the breathwork or the meditation collab with them, but you'll know, okay, they were selected. They were, they got in, they made it through the month. Uh, you know, they've upgraded in some way. They're interested in wellness, personal development, nature, all these things. So you've almost kind of, hopefully we'll have an internal sort of social network almost. Um, and I love the idea that it'll be anywhere and people can still share their workshops online and they can share or they can say, Hey, we're going to have an innate meetup in London or in Sydney or whatever. Um, so that's sort of what I'm thinking of in a distributed uh, community will be for us. I, I see. I see. And um, you mentioned Burning Man that has been impo important for your networking and I think also for your life. So can you share a bit about your uh, Burning Man experiences and why it has so has been so profound for you sure um one of my favorite topics uh, <laughs> <laughs> and i think uh i couldn't stop talking about it when i saw you and met you in uh portugal because i just come straight from the burn um and i was just so lit up by it um i don't know every year i think of it as a new year and it's just a place to kind of drop everything relax there's no connections there's no work there's no expectations i mean that's not true there's different expectations of work but it's while you're there you know um I don't know I, I I guess it was I was so drawn to the mystery and kind of 
anthropological curiosity of this weird subculture that lived in the desert for a week a year um, and had some of the most incredible climbable artwork you could imagine um and just a place where there's a different set of rules money is not a thing it's all about gifting it's all about uplifting everyone else um, making sure everyone's having a good time there's just just huge layer of silliness like everything is just <laughs> ridiculous and it's just so fun you know like like for instance our camp you know we're the new barbarians and you know um we have an art card, Jurassic Pork. And on that art card, we do sausage sizzle. And it's like just basically a big cage with a giant sausage in it. And it's ridiculous, <laughs> but it shoots fire and it's got LEDs on it. And we've got a sound system and a barbecue on it. And it's still small and it's it's just ridiculous. You know, and we have just constant jokes about putting wieners in mouths. You know, it's just, it's so silly. Um, and there's, there's of course, you know, more serious sides to it, it too. There's childlike, a childlike playfulness, right? It's it's also playful, you know. There's almost a motto when you go up to an art piece. Oh my god, that's cool! Can we climb it? You know, it's just you get off your bike, you jump up on something, you climb it. You know, it's it's so much fun. You're it's very indescribable, honestly. Just roaming around and in, in bands of bikers covered in lights and feathers and glitter and whatever, and uh, just kind of going through this dust storm. And all of a sudden, there'll be a pirate ship, you know, with a, a full orchestra on it and people in stilts, you know, a dozen people in stilts and like wavy white material come off them doing a choreographed ballet just in the middle of nowhere, you know? And it's like, these people have rehearsed this, you know, for months and they've coordinated it. They've managed to get there without watches or phones or anything and somehow be on time and go out there and do this so that you can just ride past and be like, wow, that's cool. You know, it's just, it's insane. Um, the stories are pretty crazy. I think, Yeah, I think it's just the ultimate kind of expression of creativity. Um, there's really no limitations to what you can build with a group of strangers with the intention of spreading joy. And then something really special happens out of that when everyone's intention is is so positive is just these moments of synchronicity happen, you know, um, like over and over and over again. Like you just laugh at it by the end. It's like we lose someone in the middle of the day in a dust storm and like it's her birthday, right? This happened once. Chelsea, we lost mm -hmm. her. It's her birthday. And we're like, oh my God, we feel so bad. We're looking around for her. We're like, how on earth have we lost her? Anyway, we're kind of like, okay, what do we do? Okay, I guess she wants to go and do this thing. Let's go and do this thing. So we go, we go over to see this DJ playing and we like, as we're over there, we're kind of like, everyone's not having a good time because we're like, where is she? Where is she? I don't know. Anyway, and then, you know, actually hours pass. And eventually, like, we're, we're like, okay, that's it. We give up. We're going back to camp. Everyone's hungry. So we've all kind of compiled next to the bathrooms and a few people are going to the toilet. And Chelsea walks out. She's like, oh, my God, I've been waiting for you guys. And we're like, in the bathroom? <laughs> no, kidding. But I don't know. That was probably the best example. But there's just, I don't know. You're, you're, you're hungry. And then all of a sudden someone comes past with a little sushi trailer and serves yeah. you like sushi flown in from Japan, right? You're the sushi boys. And you're like, okay, this is perfect. Thank you. So um, I've, been, um, I've been, I've been once actually, uh, I was not part of a camp. Some friends of mine, they had been once and I joined them. Uh, but it was indeed a fantastic experience, fantastic experience of openness and, and friendship. And I liked because there's no digital connection every conversation that you have could be the last one, right? Because you don't know if you'll meet them again. Um, and I remember the transformation where everyone is like going to a 
foam disco naked yeah, and then you get you get foam and then you're transformed kind of did you experience that as well yes <clears throat> foam nation i absolutely love foam nation um it was <laughs> it's been one of my favorite things ever um for me honestly it was it was a lot of fun and so exciting but also like really transformative because i had grown up with a lot of body conscious issues actually mm-hmm. um and so the idea of being naked around a group of like other really good looking people like everyone at burning man is really good looking but mm-hmm. i think it's because they're so happy anyway that aside but just being naked in front of like all these really good looking people and being like completely vulnerable and there um was terrifying but i was also so dirty and we didn't have showers yet at our camp so there was really no choice and i love that on the way in they give you like the speech right and they talk you through oh we're just a collection of atoms and cells and really we should just be grateful for this body we're a lump of flesh it's really not a big deal and this kind of like zoom out of like my you know wrapped up kind of body consciousness was really transformative and actually has completely changed the way i think about my body so, so it really meant meant something to you in how you transformed how you look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of people too, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it is beautiful because it's something very atypical you, in normal life. Uh, I mean, what's normal, but in normal life, you don't often like dance in, in full nudity, right, with other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's beautiful. And how often have you been to uh, Burning Man? Um. Eight years. So eight years. Eight years, not in a row. I, I missed. I missed one, and then the pandemic, of course. And uh, was Burning Man also a reason for you to to live in the U.S. because you're from Australia originally? Yes, it absolutely was. Actually, um, I had met someone in China. Um, actually, who told me I was a burner. And I was like, "What the heck is a burner?" And there was no <laughs> there was no internet because there was a um, there was a um there was a vote on um in in government or something so there was just no foreign internet sites at all so i had to wait till i got home and google it and i looked it up and i was like oh my god this is amazing my like anthropological nerdiness was like i'm gonna write an ethnography let's go um and yeah i went with this group who i still camp with and was just so welcomed and i did start to write an ethnography and i interviewed people um for the first like four or five days i had my notebook and, and was going around interviewing asking people like why is it important to you how many times it's been why do you keep coming back um and i i fell in love with everyone's stories i fell in love with everyone um and just really felt like i'd found my people and i was like this is amazing actually one of the people i then met in the future had the sign i saw the first year finally normal people um oh. and i was like that's how i feel i'm like oh my god yeah. finally Okay, you finally, I'm not, I'm you finally found your tribe. Exactly, exactly. So then um, I wanted to live in New York already and I was working in the art world. And so it seemed like the natural kind of next step um, was to move to New York now that I had some network. I didn't really didn't have any specific people, but I was like, there's burners in New York. I'm going there and I'm going to do the art world thing, but I'm also going to, yeah, tap into that pretty easily. Um, and yeah.
you said you have a background in anthropology. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I said so anthropology. Can you, can you share a bit more about your anthropological background and how that shapes your worldview? Yeah, I'd love to actually. Thank you. Um, I, I feel like it's, I'm so grateful that I ended up doing that. Um, I did like one course of it in my first degree economics. And then when I went back to uni again, I, I was like, I'm just doing all anthropology and some art history a little bit in there too. And I feel like it really, I think it, it really like unlocked just a completely different way to see the world. Um, I'd always been drawn to kind of outside fringe things you know communism and punk rock and anarchism and all of this was always very interesting to me because i think i sensed that like the normal rules and stuff were just kind of stifling i didn't really get it so this really kind of opened up oh why like it's not that it, this is everywhere right and we create these you know with history with art you know with ritual um and we create these these sets of rules um spoken and, and unspoken that we live by to get along um, but then that kind of unlocked, oh, well, once you can see that, you can also choose how much you're going to participate in that, right? Like, am I going to participate in this type of culture? Or I'm going to take a little bit from this one, a little bit from this one and kind of be aware of what's going on. It also I think, helped me to understand why people acted the way they did a lot and have a bit more compassion, for, you know, people that didn't have the opportunity to see the kind of the bigger matrix, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, because anthropology it takes. Uh, now thinking about it, it takes a bit a community, cultural a community lens to things, right? It kind of tries to describe how people and communities kind of operate. Mm -hmm. Totally, and um, it's interesting. I feel like I swayed so far off it. I I decided I had the opportunity to go into um, academia, and I decided very quickly it's not going to be for me. There's too many rules, um, and I was quite sad to have let it go I've got still some of my great friends from school that have gone down that path and I and I've always had a bit of a twinge of jealous jealousy honestly um so then to to now kind of full circle back around just through living my life by the way it's been unlocked by anthropology and kind of step into such fall into all these communities and now really be be so interested in people and groups and how they function and now be advising people and groups and how they function um and interviewing different people and compiling knowledge and redistributing that knowledge in a way it's anthropology but it's just a it's not an academic sort of anthropology you know so I, when i told my mom i was starting to consult for these intentional communities she's like oh my gosh finally anthropology <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is anthropology but you're kind of observing people that live a conscious and nomadic lifestyle at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, at the moment, and, and I think they often have a kind of a lot of alignment in their worldviews, right? Person to pack up, they even put all their storage unit or places for months at a time. There's like a other ways of living. Um, and then even though they may be doing totally different things, it's it's so interesting how much common ground there is um, across, you know, race and religion and, and all those things. But there's still that kind of, I think, curiosity again, actually. Yeah. So your mom was happy that you finally did something with uh, anthropology. And how is it for your, your parents that you have all these adventures all over the place, but, but not in your own country? Like, how is it for them? Um. Honestly, they're pretty good about it. Um, I 
yeah, I had a really great example of my grandma who traveled around the whole world and also brought up four kids um, through the depression by herself. And so I definitely caught the travel bug for her. So it's not completely unfounded that someone would go off and do that. I mean, she definitely came home in between time. I haven't been home I think I, last time it was 2018, although I'm going after this. Um, so it's hard, you know, the distance, but uh, honestly, they are just really happy that I'm happy. Um, I actually, yeah, had a pretty hard time leaving the home early on. And, um, that kind of line was drawn in the sand that I drew that was basically, Hey, I'm going to go and do this and you can either get behind it, uh, or you could not, and we don't need to speak. So <laughs> <laughs> luckily it worked. <laughs> yeah. Luckily it worked. Yeah, in the beginning, maybe they need to adjust, but if you're consistent, then people at least know what to expect. So your your grandmother has been an adventurous soul. Can you share a bit more about her and about her adventures and how how she did it? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. She 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 was a hilarious, very strong woman. We have definitely a family of matriarchs. Um, yeah. She she really just every every extra bit of money she ever got, she saved. Um, she traveled on a shoestring. I feel like she caught boats when she was early on traveling out of Australia into Southeast Asia. Um, and she's been everywhere, all of the Middle East, all of Africa, all of Southeast Asia, um, obviously all of Europe too. I don't think she did a lot in the Americas, um, but she's definitely been to Mexico. Um, and I know I can remember a lot of these things actually. Yes, from her stories, but also from the gifts she would bring back to us. Um, and we had a charm bracelet, my sister and I, and she'd bring a different charm from each country and it was just completely full. It was insane. Um, but she would, she would travel really cheaply. She'd take, take buses and trains between places once she got out of Australia. Um, and she would stay in youth hostels until she was like in her mid seventies. And I just always used to feel so bad for those people because she's such a terrible snorer and she'd go <laughs> in the eight bed and just snore so, oh my gosh i just would feel so awful for him <laughs> and, and did she travel with her children and and with your grandfather she traveled alone or what how did it look like no she traveled alone um she she definitely took a break when the kids were obviously you know going through high school and stuff but when they were young um she traveled before they were young and then when they were young she left the kids with family members and would go um couple of years and um her sucked um so they weren't around for that long um so it was mostly just her and then once they all uh left school i think yeah the kids left school at 16 or 18 and left the house then too so she was in terms of parenting nowadays she was out of kids pretty early which was good and then yeah she spent a lot of a lot of the rest of her life traveling um and exploring and one of the themes of Soul Kitchen is that people share recipes uh, with the listener for life. But before I ask about your own recipe, what is kind of the recipe from your grandmother, if you had to summarize it? Oh, my gosh. Hers is probably travel cheap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Don't take on too many responsibilities. Um <laughs> uh so keep keep it lean and mean kind of yeah yeah i think so um and maybe hers would be i mean hers was definitely experiences over things um so that one's actually definitely been for most of our family which is nice yeah <laughs> but that's, that's a great example because i feel in that time not too many people especially women were traveling alone so that's quite remarkable 
mm-hmm. especially for that for that era. And if you think about your own uh, recipe from yeah for life, what's the recipe that you want to share with people listening to this episode? Yeah, it's funny. At first, I took it very literally, and I like wrote out like this like actual recipe, like a pinch of courage and the base of passion, and like all of this type of thing. But I, I I've kind of simplified. Something came to me the other night before I went to sleep. Um, I saw it at Burning Man the first year, written into the side of a tent, you know, with a finger uh, through the dust, uh, and it said "Dream big, laugh hard," and I always mm-hmm. love that. Um, like of this you know do things you want to do don't settle for anything less don't be afraid to walk away from something when it's not serving you anymore say no there's always something else out there and kind of make space for that dream and then i love laugh hard because it's like obviously like joy passion love you know just silliness all the things and i like laugh hard and the hard particularly because it's it's kind of like ugly, right? It's like ugly laugh, you know, don't be afraid to just like completely lose it. Right. And there's like a vulnerability in that, which is, which is, I think really important too. Right. It's like you get deeper and, you know, you can kind of experience a fuller version of yourself and other people can accept you more. And all these barriers are broken when you're kind of vulnerable and joyful. Yeah. That's uh, that's a great recipe. I mean, you're clearly living the recipe because you're dreaming big. You're laughing a lot, so that you're a good example. And did this recipe, um, did you already have this when you were very young or kind of did it come at some point in your life, the dream big laugh heart? Um, I think, I mean, I think it came out of Burning Man, honestly, um, because, and I, I don't know, I feel like before that I, I did so many things. I, actually, yeah, I think it was Burning Man. Before that, I didn't really know what I was dreaming And I felt a little lost. Like I tried so many different things already, honestly, by the time I moved to the States and it was just a big collection of no's and it wasn't, it wasn't depressing or anything, but I was, but I definitely wasn't exactly sure what to do. And that's also why I love the States is just the people are really going after their dreams in like crazy, no holds bars ways. Um, And so just being, that's why I was drawn to live there and kind of being surrounded by people getting it right. Um, which I didn't find in, in my networks in Australia so much. I see. And uh, what's your current dream, if you have to describe it? Ooh. Oh, goodness. I mean, honestly, my current dream. Ooh. I think currently I'm, I'm focusing on learning and, and deepening vulnerability, actually. Mm. Yeah. Deepening vulnerability. And um, what makes you vulnerable at the moment? Oh, um, at the moment, honestly, it's it's often space and um, social energy related, um, and and boundaries around that, and kind of getting better at that and toying with that. And it's and it's interesting. Obviously, I'm in such these communal environments, and I'm deliberately doing it. I love it, but it's also quite challenging for me sometimes, or often. Um, so that's part of the vulnerability is instead of trapping, Oh, like I'm feeling like I've spoken to people for three and a half days straight and I'm exhausted. And then someone wants to chat to me in the kitchen instead of being like sitting there through the conversation and not being happy, like being honest with myself and being present being like, you know, I, sorry, I'm not here for this. I'm going to my room or whatever. Um, and kind of being able to share with people where I'm at instead of pretending to be brave and the community leader, right? As manager oh, all the time. <laughs> so pretending, instead of pretending to be always available, be more honest and you need some time for yourself. Mm-hmm. 
think that's uh, important. Otherwise, we uh, we keep going. I think we have a bit a similar personality uh, type, and then the risk is to keep going, right? Mm-hmm. And then can also become a bit fake because uh, yeah. Another thing you mentioned in your recipe is uh, be willing to walk away when it doesn't serve you anymore. So be willing to say no, uh, which often is hard. Sometimes you can stick into something. So can you um, maybe, can you elaborate a bit on this and maybe also give an example on how you've applied that in your life? Yeah. um, I guess I feel like a lot of the time when things are in flow, you're feeling good about it, right? And you can kind of follow that path because you want to be on that path. And then everything seems to work, right? You maybe are healthier, your relationship's going better. Everything sort of tends to be all up or all down for me at least. Um, And then sometimes I'll find if I'm stuck doing something that I don't want to be doing. I mean, of course, sometimes you just have to do that. That's life, right? Um, But if if you can help it, then there's that feeling of stuck and stickiness and like, why, why am I like having now trouble in other things? Because your energy is like not going forward in the way that you should be. Um, I think I, I also witnessed that in, in other people pretty clearly too, you know, when they're really down about something, it's like, well, it might not even be what they think is the problem, right? Like maybe their job's giving them a hard time, but really it's because they're not enjoying where they're living and their roommates or something like that, or you know, I think things are always quite linked. Um, and I think a, an awareness of what's not working and being able to walk away from that is, is really crucial. Um, I guess an example, I think an example is the previous um, big project I was working on, Cielos in the desert. Um, I just loved it so much. I love being out there. I love my team. Um, I loved how it was bringing people together and seeing how it was changing lives. Um, but ultimately, I just didn't, I didn't end up having the same aligned vision for it as some of the other people on the team. And it didn't, and I wasn't going to (laughs) win, you know, I wasn't going to, they weren't going to follow my vision. Right. Which is fine. Right. And that's, that's the way the Mm -hmm. people crumble sometimes. Right. But then ultimately that, that made me realize that I'm no longer in alignment following that and putting and I was putting you know my entire heart and soul seven days a week for 18 months sort of life into it and then it was like okay I didn't really know like okay what am I going to do next like where where is this going to go and it was quite scary and it took me quite a while to to come around to the realization um that this was also causing problems everywhere else and I had to just rip off the band-aid I guess um yeah Mm -hmm. and how did you uh uh, communicate that like you communicate and you left or there was like transition period because that can be challenging yeah it was super challenging because we we're a small team um and yeah i mean it was it, uh, yeah i had a probably a three-hour conversation with the the ceo um which was actually one of our most open conversations we have, we'd ever had um which i'm really grateful for and we we yeah kind of spoke through it all he definitely tried to convince me to stay of course um but I had to kind of be strong uh in my conviction to do that but it was terrifying um I I was very nervous for for that conversation for quite a while um and yeah so that was really conscious conversation and then you know there was just so many practicalities I was doing so many things because there was only four of us living there um, so there was a lot of handing over and writing out the processes for new people and finding new people to come on, take on different parts of my role, um, and then transitioning the different elements to the different new people that, that are now there and, and taken over. 
So it wasn't really a like, oh, that's it, I'm going, I'm packing up my trailer and driving right. away. Like, no, that definitely wasn't going to happen. So, so you were ner nervous about it, but it ended up to be an open conversation. And I'm curious uh, what part of the vision uh, led to a misalignment? Hmm. Um, I think just the, the, the use of the space, honestly. Um, there was some of the team who had definitely thought that we were building it for more retreat and kind of deeper healing. Um, and that's sort of the side I was on and that we didn't need necessarily a lot of extra sound equipment and kind of party stuff. And then there was another kind of element of it that was, we definitely hosted celebrations and weddings and, and big events like that. Um, and um, there was just a kind of a, yeah, there was a fork in the road of which way we were going to go. And then there was a big building project that happened to support kind of the more um, celebratory events, um, which, you know, some of us disagreed upon. And, um, but ultimately I think that the way that company is going and that group is going, the, there's going to be space for both, but it's just like how much longer could I have waited it out? Because ultimately I was still working with every single weekend, each of the celebratory experiences and it was very draining. So for me, I was like, I don't think I've got a few years to wait this out, you know? And, um, um, so at some point you, you, you realize you want to do something else. I'm curious, like managing difficult conversations is one of the tough things in life, but it's an important skill uh, to develop also to stay healthy uh, or emotionally healthy. So what's your approach to managing difficult conversations? Um, I think something I often, I feel like I express myself better in writing. So I'll often write out whatever it is I'm trying to say in like long form, not notes. Um, and that might take a few hours or days. Um, and then I think the act of writing it out too will often clarify, Oh, like, do I really mean that now that that's on paper or, or computer? Um, does that really feel like aligned anymore rather than spitting something out? Um, I don't send the writing to people really ever. I think it's normally better to have the communication in person. Um, and I think there's something about trying to be an active listener and, even if you don't say it out loud, repeating back in your head, your understanding of what the other person said before you speak so that you make sure that you're kind of addressing their point, not your reaction to their point. Mm. So active listening is about really addressing their point of view instead of your reaction. So how do you listen actively? Do you have a, um, like, like how does that work? What, how can people do that? Um, there's a few kind of different like schools and theories on it, like nonviolent communication goes into it a little bit. Um, but essentially there's all sorts of varieties, but it's really listening with your whole self, not thinking about something else, not waiting to interrupt, not waiting to have your peace. Um, and oftentimes it's useful to repeat back to someone, oh, especially if you don't understand something, you're not sure, oh, what you mean, do I understand correctly that what you mean is X, Y, Z? And then that gives them the opportunity to clarify, oh, no, I actually meant ABC. Um, and then I think then you're able to understand them, as I said, without putting your bias onto it first. Mm. So sometimes you summarize it a bit and then you give it back to a person to really check if you've understood it. I think you're really good at it. I think you do it all the time without trying. <laughs> I'm doing it right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I, um, um, I, I, I've been noticing in podcasts that it can be, um, uh, in, when I started, I, I wrote some questions out. Um, but then at some point I removed the questions because suddenly you're maybe too focused on the questions. So, so now I've removed uh, the questions. Um, another topic that I, I would like to talk about is the imposter syndrome. Because we spoke earlier about this uh, uh, this phenomenon. So how does this apply to your own life? Can you share a bit about it? Ah, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that came up for me when when you'd asked me to think about the the topic of entering the unknown, leaving the home, and continuously exploring. And I definitely immediately was like, "Oh no, I don't need to talk about that." There's so many well-traveled people out there. Well, who am I to get on this podcast and start talking about how I've gone and lived and traveled all over the world? You know, um, and I think. I don't know. I think sometimes it has a bit to do like that specific one has a little bit to do with like privilege too. Right. Like, Oh, I've been privileged enough to do that. Right. Like it's, I've got university degrees. I, I, I know that I'll be able to fall back on a job and for me to get up and yes, quit something and say, Oh yeah, quit whatever is not working for you is, is a really privileged point of view. So there's a little bit of that. I feel like with my imposter syndrome, um, like how easy it's been for me in a sense. Um, and it definitely has not been easy at all, but relatively speaking. Um, so I think that has a bit to do with it. Um, I think sometimes I just feel really lucky for where I'm at in life. And it's not that I didn't do anything to get there, but I, I feel like it's almost un undeservedly lucky. Like, oh my gosh, how did I end up working with this group where, you know, I get to be in beautiful places around the world for a month at a time and help them organize their fun events and workshops and pull out like what they want to offer a group of people and, you know, organize group dinners in the best restaurants in town. Like, oh, what a terrible job, you know? Like, <laughs> I so see. I think there's, there's a bit more of but that. The role of privilege is an interesting one because um, uh, some of the things that you've done it's easier when you come from privilege. But still, if you come from privilege, it doesn't mean that you're going to do these things, right? Mm. Yeah, um, definitely. I I think that's a funny thing that I've, I've thought about a lot. I, I went to a very good school um, in Sydney and I was surrounded by a lot of very wealthy people. And then working in the art world, I also obviously was exposed to a lot of very wealthy people. And um witnessing how I think the actual like money and the bank account number doesn't really matter so much. It does definitely come down to personality, but there are totally things that help, you know, like access to education and all of this. Um, but I, I think you're right. It does come down to a personality and a drive at the end of the day. Um, and something I sort of noticed and I used to talked about really early on um, with an ex-boyfriend was the idea of being hungry, right? Like you've got to be hungry for something else in order to make a change. If you're too privileged and it's too easy, then you're not hungry. So you don't try that hard. Not yeah. always, but sometimes. So there is a certain hunger that is needed for change. And um, we, we were talking about money and you seem to be someone that trusts that new projects will arrive and that, that, tr that trust that money will work out. But how do you, um, deal with money in, in the fluid life that you're living? Um, not always that well. Um, I think <laughs> sometimes, you know, I, I feel like I have a lot of trust. My, my mother definitely doesn't feel as confident um, and, and constantly bugging me about new contracts and things like that. Um, I, I think that, yeah, there's, 
I don't know. I feel like there's some sort of a trust in myself too. It's not even necessarily trust the universe, right? To like manifest something. It's like, no, I trust myself that I'm an extremely hard worker. For a lot of my life, I've had multiple jobs and I've had very little sleep and I go straight from this job to this thing, to uni, to this, to like extra courses. And like, I keep myself really busy anyway. Um, I feel like there's, there's also an element of like, nothing's really below me. You know, I've done so many of those kind of different jobs that I could walk in basically anywhere and do something if I needed to. So while I would rather not go back to being a barista or, or a, you know, cocktail mixologist, if I needed to, I totally could. Right. Um, so I think that there's, there's that. And, and again, I don't know that I want, you know, like, some of them were some of the more fun jobs I've had also, right? I, I love what I'm doing now, but, you know, there's, I, I don't know. I feel like I don't dislike working and my standards, I guess, are not that high. <laughs> yeah. I see. So you're, you're a hardworking individual and you're willing to go back to being a barista if needed. Um, and, and you've always been able to find new projects. You've also worked in the art world uh, where there's definitely a lot of, a lot of wealth, but also a lot of creativity. I'm curious if you look back at your career in art, uh, what what has been your main takeaway from that experience? Hmm. I think I I had a really um, strong ambition to bring uh, artists' artworks directly to people who were buying it and kind of cut out the middleman of the gallery for a long time, and, and I worked on that for quite a while. And I found myself building this thing that I assumed the artist wanted, but then <laughs> halfway through building it, I realized, oh, actually, they're not really that interested in doing any of this. You've just projected what you think someone else wants mm. into a situation. So I think that was the biggest lesson. Um, don't project <laughs> onto other people's desires or wishes. Um, what, what were you creating? What were you trying to solve for them? Uh, it was a platform, basically a digital platform to sell artwork online um, because I'd worked in China um, kind of as a as a dealer, I suppose. And then I worked in New York with billionaires buying and selling for them and seeing just how much of a huge cut um, the gallery takes. And it just felt honestly really unfair. Um, there's actually other things that have arisen now that do this pretty well. Um, but that was an early thing. And actually, then when I was in Berlin living there for a little bit, I spent a lot more time talking to people and trying to get their feedback and like, this is how many steps it would take and da, 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 da. And the artists are kind of like, a lot of them were like, I just don't want to do any of those things. <laughs> you know? And I was like, okay, fair enough. That's why you're an artist. Cool. Got it. So, so it was uh, a really uh, uh, good learning that you yeah, created something that was not actually needed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's still needed and it's been done better than, than I think I would have done it anyway. So I'm glad it's out there now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Did you waste a lot of your own money on it or ma mo mainly time? Um, yeah, some money too. A good chunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, um, I think you, you learn the most when it's also a bit painful, right? Mm -hmm. Or, uh, or financially. Mm -hmm. So you've worked with, bil with billionaires in New York, you said, um, how is that for you? Is that like easy or are you a bit nervous because you look up to them or you just see them as normal humans? How was it? Yeah, I found it totally fine. Um, I don't really get nervous around them at all. Um, I 
feel like that was actually going to be the other thing I was tossing up about my biggest lesson actually was working with them and um, learning that really money really doesn't make you happy. And when you have that much, it tends to make you pretty upset. Um, And just the, the, I think the trade-off for having a lot of money is not having a lot of trust um, and then being further away from community. So yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't nervous. I actually had to drop swearing pretty quickly working with them after I came straight from Australia. Um, uh, but that was just swearing. I, yeah, I think I, a lot of people in Australia swear, um, or at least did where I was from, um, more than we do in the upper echelons of New York society. <laughs> Shocking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, other than that, I always felt pretty yeah not phased by being completely not on that level and just thought the whole thing was just pretty crazy and wild <laughs> mm, i can imagine yeah it sounds cool i was in new york once uh, we were supposed to run the marathon but cool. the, it was in 2012 but there was sandy it was the snowstorm mm-hmm. so our, our marathon got cancelled but at some point i was in a party and then someone invited us to like a rooftop party with a famous painter and then there are all sorts of people and and it was a wild kind of party. But yeah, New York, for me, I think it will be tough for me to live there because I will probably keep going until I'm burned out. So I think it will be too risky for me uh, to live there. Uh, but you survived. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's one of the, the things about New York. You, you At first, yes, you go so hard. You're burning the candle at both ends. Like I had two jobs. I was like, yeah, like meeting all the burners, which meant partying a lot and then going out on dates all the time, just exhausted and like dying. Um, but I think New York is the best place to learn boundaries because there's just always something going on. Um, yeah. And you, you've got to say no, because you will, you will perish. <laughs> so you can practice boundary setting and, uh, and saying no. I think that's, that's absolutely true. So is there a final piece of wisdom that you want to share with people listening to this uh, episode? Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I feel like I've given, given a lot of wisdom here. Um, no, I think just have fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good piece. And if they want to uh, get engaged in, uh, in Nate or if they want to join one of your upcoming co-livings, like, can you give a bit of a few what's, what's coming? Yeah. <clears throat> um, so we've got two booked in Bali and we're going to have one from the basically February and one in March and they're going to be yoga meditation themed. Um, it's in this beautiful place. Actually, it's in the same complex that I stayed in in 2020. Um, that is just absolutely gorgeous. There's these five villas that are very big. And then there's this amazing co-working space. Every room has its own bathroom and desk. And there's a big communal kitchen in there. There's two or three pools. Um, there's actually an Ayurvedic center on site. So if you wanted to dive into kind of a wellness um, complete Ayurveda retreat. You could totally do that as an add-on there. Like it's already there. There's a restaurant there too. So you can have lunch and breakfast and dinner. If you want to just sit there, if you don't want to cook, um, it's about five minutes out of the food. Uh, and I just absolutely love being there, uh, in the pandemic, actually the, the wild animals had definitely started coming back in. There were monkeys everywhere. There was like all sorts of creepy crawlies, but I think now that there's, um, kind of a repopulation of people back in that area, um, Maybe they'll have retreated further into the jungle, hopefully. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's going to be really beautiful. We're working with a couple of just incredible um, facilitators again. And 
yeah, yoga twice a day, um, working in the middle, and then we'll we'll be doing experiences together, uh, created from within the group, and we'll also do things like probably climb a tour and, and kind of some of the other things I learned from from being out there for a few months last year, 2020. Um, yeah, it's a nice time of year to escape the cold in the north, that's for sure. <laughs> well, thank you for, for sharing. So if people want to meet, uh, meet you, they can come to Bali and join one of your experiences. And thank you for your time and sharing your experiences. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. 